All right, as we go to God's Word in a moment, a reminder that we're in a sermon series called Faithful in the Fire. And if you've missed any of these, I encourage you after the service to go to YouTube, search for Bel Air Church, and you'll see right at the top this sermon series that we've been walking through the book of Daniel. We're now in our sixth of seven weeks. We're going to wrap up next week. And what a great opportunity for us to be reminded that, you know, physical fires, actual fires with heat and and intensity, they have the potential to not only burn and destroy and disfigure, but they have the possibility of incinerating anything they come into contact with. Metaphorically speaking, there are things in this world, in our life, experiences that we might go through, things that we either choose or don't choose, things out of our control or within our control that have the possibility to, to damage our faith, to incinerate our joy, our patience, God's call on our life. And as we've been walking through this sermon series, we're exploring what does it mean to not just fear the fires as they come, to not just fight the fires or avoid the fires, but what does it mean to faithfully follow God even up to and in the fire? In fact, if you haven't been with us, there is a literal fire that happens in the book of Daniel. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 3. And the short story is this, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three men with Babylonian names in the Babylonian kingdom were actually born in Israel, Jewish by birth. And they have been called out of that place to live in exile in Babylon And they are being faithful to the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's this scene, this remarkable scene in Daniel chapter 3, where King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful person on the planet, has issued a decree that whenever people are in public and they don't bow down and worship the massive structure that he had built of himself, that there would be a penalty. Penalty was death by fire. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're they're pulled before King Nebuchadnezzar and King Nebuchadnezzar gives them a choice. You either bow down and worship me or that's your fate. And they have this remarkable response. They say, our God is able to save us. But even if our God doesn't, we still won't bow down and worship your gods, which is so remarkable because their faith wasn't just in what God could do for them, save them, But their faith was in God, regardless of what God chose to do. That level of faith was so remarkable because they are now thrown into the fire. And King Nebuchadnezzar jumps up. He is amazed at what he sees. And he sees not three, but four individuals in the fire. They are unbound, which means they're free. They're walking, which means they have agency. In the middle of the fire, which means they're right in the intensity, the hottest part of the fire, but they're not alone. There is a fourth individual who looks like a God. And if you've been with us every single week, we've uncovered that Scripture ultimately says that this isn't just some magnificent rescuer or person. This is God. This is Jesus. Hundreds of years before he was born in Bethlehem, the pre-incarnate Son of God, who meets them in the midst of the fire, who doesn't put out the fire, who doesn't prevent them from going in the fire, but ultimately who meets them in the fire so that there can be this view from King Nebuchadnezzar of what it looks like to be free in the fire. They're pulled out. King Nebuchadnezzar exclaims, my goodness, your God saves unlike any other God. And this physical fire from which they were saved, of which they were faithful up to 
and into is a great framework that helps us see all the seven metaphorical fires that I see in the book of Daniel. And each week has been one of these metaphorical fires. And today we get to the fire of success. And as we work through today's sermon, let me just first say, we live in a culture that doesn't deem success as a fire. We in our culture deem success as something fantastic, as something that should be the goal, as something that we should aim for. We, we define success as, especially perhaps as people of faith, as the result of God's blessing, that it is in direct relation to our faithfulness to God. And so why on earth would we ever say that success is a fire? Well, we're going to discover very quickly as we go to Daniel chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to go there. That this scene in Scripture is actually echoed throughout the entirety of Scripture. That when our success causes us to forget who God is and how we are desperately in need of God's sustaining of our life, that we are actually nothing apart from God, that we actually can't do anything on our own, when success begins to blind us of our need for God, when success causes us to close up Scripture, when success causes us to stop praying to God, talking to God, when success causes us to think that we, we're on a roll and we can just kind of do without God. And wow, God just blessed me and my plans. We can begin to veer off course so much that pride begins to build up in our life. And as it says in Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before the fall. Success can be a great fire that actually damages and incinerates our faith, incinerates our reliance on God, incinerates our humility, incinerates our need to constantly turn back to God, to repent, incinerate our need to come before God in, in, in hope and humility. And so as we get to Daniel chapter 4, uh, we won't read through the entirety of this chapter, but let me, let me frame it this way. Because as we get into this, uh, there's three things that I see that help us learn how to be faithful in the fire of success. Before I get to those three, let me tell you a little bit about the structure of Daniel chapter 4. There's something that's found throughout uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, and it is a chiastic structure, also known as a chiasm. And it is this structure of things. Again, in the Hebrew language, there's no italics. There's no bold font. There's no emojis that can be put after words to draw our attention. Uh, and so they had to use written techniques in order to lead the reader or lead the hearer when it was read to get to the point, to understand where there's emphasis. So for example, whenever you hear something repeated three times, holy, 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 it is underlined, it is in all caps, it is bolded, it is saying that God, the maker of heaven and earth, is perfectly holy. There is none like him. That there is this sense that there can't be more holiness and more grandeur to God when we say something three times. And a chiastic structure, basically, if you can imagine this, as you read down, this happens frequently throughout the Psalms, is it introduces idea, perhaps makes another point, and then the middle or the third point is the heart of the matter, the bullseye 
of the target, of the writer's intent, that then moves to a repeat of what was the second thing and then ends with, in a sense, a repeat of the first thing. The way I like to think of it is there is a frame around a picture. And as you're reading, you get to the frame, the first thought. And when you get to the very end, it's the same thing. It's just like the frame. And what's in the middle is the picture. And we see this in Daniel chapter 4. What's so remarkable, if I could say it this way, is how it begins is also how it ends. It is the frame of this chapter, the frame of this thought, the frame of this point. And it begins with King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, actually praising God. This is a remarkable thing that can happen. That people who formerly believe in other gods, who have different worldviews, who can actually be persecuting followers of God. He was the reason why they were thrown in the fire. This is immediately following that scene. King Nebuchadnezzar sees how their God saves and begins to believe himself. And Daniel chapter 4 begins with him praising God. Listen to what he says. This is chapter 4, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that live throughout the earth. This is not a private thought. This is not a statement that he makes privately to Daniel, to Shadrach, to Meshach, and Abednego. This is about as public as you can get. This is the king of Babylon communicating to everyone who has ears. May you have abundance and prosperity, the signs and wonders that the most high God has worked for me. I am pleased to recount. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his sovereignty is from generation to generation. It begins remarkably, the frame, so to speak, is King Nebuchadnezzar saying that everything in my life is from God. I owe it all to him. It's his kingdom, not my kingdom. It's his kingdom that will last forever. What a remarkable statement. And it ends the exact same way. The other side of the frame, this chiastic structure repeats, comes back to the beginning. I want you to see this. This is in uh, verse 34 of chapter 4. When that period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I blessed the Most High and praised and honored the one who lives forever. For his sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does what he wills with the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? So how it begins is how it ends, to repeat. The frames of this picture are the exact same. King Nebuchadnezzar acknowledging rightly who God is rightly attributing to God all the glory, all the praise, all the might, saying that his kingdom, not King Nebuchadnezzar's, but God's kingdom is the kingdom that lasts forever. Now, what's so fascinating is the picture that unfolds within the frame. And to understand that the author of Daniel is trying to get us to see the picture in the frame. 
we see not just the frame on the outside, but it moves in. And if I could describe it this way, it's almost like there is a mat within the frame that is still on the outside of the picture. So if you move in closer, what's interesting is you've got the frame praising God, got the frame praising God. But when you move in, there is a vision that King Nebuchadnezzar has. And it's a vision of a great tree, massive in size, that bears much fruit, gives shade to all people, that the animals of the earth come and find their rest under. And then something happens in this dream. The tree is cut down and things begin to unravel. And there's great horror that causes King Nebuchadnezzar great fear after he wakes up from that dream. Now we know that it is a chiastic structure and a mat because the second to last thing that happens in Daniel chapter four is that vision becomes reality, which we'll get to in a moment. So you've got the frame on the outside, you've got the mat and the picture dead center. What's the picture? The picture is a cautionary tale of what happens when great success clouds our reliance on God, when great success becomes a fire that incinerates the frame, when great success incinerates the realization that it is God who provides, when it incinerates the realization that it is God's kingdom that lasts forever, when great success incinerates a reality that every good and perfect gift comes from God alone. Well, the picture is written right here, verse 28. So if you have your Bibles, we'd love for you to turn there. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. This is Daniel chapter four, verse 28. It says this, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king said, this is the picture, Listen to how different it is than the frames. Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my mighty power and for my glorious majesty? The writer of Daniel is causing us to zoom in to see what happened, how deadly the fires of success can be. He shifted away from God to me. And there's this great cautionary tale that reminds all of us, even after we come to know God as our savior, our provider, that there still is a possibility that we can forget who God is, forget that it is God that provides, forget that it is God that gives us success, can begin to love success more than the one who gives it to us, and we can move our perspective away from God onto ourselves. The, the gravitational pull of our lives moves off of God and onto ourself. We move out of God's orbit and perhaps put God in our orbit. We forget that we are called to serve God and we begin to think that God is supposed to serve us. And what's so remarkable is how quickly things begin to unravel. But to understand what unravels, let's back up. Let's take a look at this dream and the interpretation. Remember, I said that there was this dream. It's kind of like the mat within the frames. He has this great dream of this great tree. It's cut down. Daniel, of all people, 
who has been called into exile in Babylon, who is faithfully following God. And this, in many ways, comes off the heels of the sermon a few weeks ago on the fires of discernment. He's come to be a trusted advisor to the king, even though he believes not in the Babylonian gods, but to the God most high, the God of the Bible. And King Nebuchadnezzar goes to him before he goes to all the other enchanters in the kingdom and asks him to interpret his dream. And Daniel interprets it this way. Then Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar, was severely distressed for a while. His thoughts terrified him. The king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or the interpretation terrify you. And so Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, Daniel's Babylonian name, says this, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree that you saw, which grew great and strong so that its top reached to the heaven and was visible to the ends of the whole earth, whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and which provided food for all, under which animals of the field lived, and in whose branches the birds of the air had nest. That tree is you, O king. The interpretation was that King Nebuchadnezzar's might had grown so great, so grand, so tall, so massive, that the whole world saw it. You have grown great and strong. Your greatness has increased and reached to heaven and your sovereignty to the ends of the earth. And whereas the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and roots in the ground with the band of iron and bronze in the grass of the field and let him be bathed with the dew of heaven and let his lot be with the animals of the field until seven times pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. And it is a decree of the Most High that has come upon my Lord the king. You shall be driven away from human society. Your dwelling shall be with the wild animals. You shall be made to eat grass like ox and you shall be bathed with the dew of heaven. And seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time that you learn that heaven is sovereign. Let me repeat that. As it was commanded to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be reestablished for you from the time as a result of when you learn that heaven is sovereign. Therefore, O king, may my counsel be acceptable to you. Atone for your sins with righteousness and your iniquities with mercy to the oppressed so that your prosperity may be prolonged. You see, what's happening here is pride was beginning to seep into the heart of King Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a warning that God gives King Nebuchadnezzar in this dream. Don't lose sight that I, like you said before, the frame of the picture, am sovereign over all. It is my kingdom. It is my might. It is the blessings that I have given to you. And so there's this cautionary moment. And yet still, the picture that we see, which I read earlier in verse 28, King Nebuchadnezzar, he forgets. He allows that pride to seep in. He doesn't take the warning in the dream. 
despite the warning that his kingdom will be cut down, despite the warning that though the roots and the stump will still be there and it will be reestablished only and if when he realizes that God is king and sovereign over all, he still says, ha, this is my kingdom. This is my might, which I have built with my power. And what's so remarkable is how quickly when that pride wells up, the fall follows. Verse 31 while the words were still in the king's mouth. What were the words? I read them before. I'll repeat again. Is this not magnificent Babylon, which I have built as a royal capital by my power and for my glorious majesty? Verse 31, while the words were still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared the kingdom has departed from you. Just like that, all the success, all the work, which ultimately were a gift from God, provided by God. When forgotten, when pride welled up in King Nebuchadnezzar's heart and mind and words, instantly it was taken away from him, just like the dream foretold. Verse 32, you shall be driven away from human society and your dwelling shall be with the animals of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you have learned that the Most High has sovereignty over the kingdom of mortals and gives it to whom he will immediately. The sentence was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven away from human society. He ate grass like oxen and his body was bathed with the dew of heaven until his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails became like bird's claws. The reality of the dream had been fulfilled because he forgot that it was God who provides. His success had clouded his vision and it was a fire. But what's so remarkable is that fire didn't destroy him. You see, he had begun to put his faith in God Almighty. And even though he had forgotten that it was God that provided, I believe a relationship had begun. And again, this promise that God gave King Nebuchadnezzar was this, that even if you forget me, and even though I will bring you low, I will make it possible that if you simply turn back to me, the blessings will be restored. Your kingdom will be restored. Your sanity will be restored. The fire of success ultimately won't destroy you. And so these frames of acknowledgement, of praise, the mat of the particular circumstances that really just apply to Nebuchadnezzar lead us to the picture of what can happen when pride comes before the fall, when success becomes a great fire. And what's so beautiful, like I said, this is why the chiastic structure is so important. It shows us that no matter how far we fall away from God's best, there's still an opportunity to turn back to God and God receives us. And that's where we've already read it. The very end, verse 34, when that period was over, I, King Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. I bless the Most High and praise and honor the one who lives forever for his sovereignty. He, basically, he's coming back to what he had forgotten. And because of all that, which we have all said, what I haven't read is verse 36. After he praises God, he says, at that time, my reason returned to me 
and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. My counselors and my Lord sought me out. I was reestablished over my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. And so it's so beautiful. We see this in chiastic structure all the time is that it's not just a mere image, but it is a mere plus. So he begins with exalting God, praising God, giving God the glory. And yet he moves to this time where he forgets and then remembers. And God does something through that transformational process that God couldn't have done had he not passed through the fire, that God couldn't have done had he not learned how to be faithful in the fire, that God couldn't have done had not he experienced the transformation that God did as a result of him passing through the fire. This is something that I've seen time and time again in my own life, in my friends' lives, and in those that provide pastoral counseling. There's people who begin a relationship with God. They, They know, gosh, I'm so grateful for God. I'm so thankful for the the breath in my lungs, the beating of my heart, the relationships I have. And over time, sometimes, not always, sometimes success can come in their life and they can forget. They can abandon cultivating that relationship with God. They forget that Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And things happen. In their pride, they begin to take God for granted. In their pride, they... They get puffed up and begin to treat other people with a lack of respect. Uh, In their pride, they, they rush into decisions thinking that they have all the answers without seeking God's wise counsel. And the circumstances play out horribly. There's setbacks. And then again and again, I've seen when people begin to realize that God doesn't abandon them when that happens, but God meets them in the midst of that fire. I they, we, we turn back to God and God transforms us in such a way that we actually grow through it, we become more like Christ through it. And what's interesting in verse 37, I believe this is a full acknowledgement, a deeper acknowledgement, a, a deeper faith that King Nebuchadnezzar has. He ends with this, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are truth. His ways are our justice, and he is able to bring low those who walk in pride. His faith grows throughout the fire of success. It doesn't incinerate because God meets him in the midst of it. All right, so that's the big story of, of Daniel chapter four, but what does that mean for us today? And again, how can we be faithful in the fire of success? There's three quick things that I wanna move through. The first is this, is to remember your identity. Second, set yourself up for failure more often. Third, rejoice in the right thing first. All right, first thing, remember your identity. There's this remarkable truth that when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are so much more than what you do. You're so much more than your accomplishments. You're so much more than your reputation. You're so much more than your possessions. One of my favorite books written by Henry Now, and he's since passed, but uh, it's a book called Life of the Beloved. And he says, in Western culture, we often answer the question, who am I? One of three ways. We, in our culture, in the West, often say, I am 
what I do, my accomplishments. Or we say, I am what I am, my possessions. Or we say, I am my reputation. And he says, it's so fascinating when you look at on culture, when people put their primary identity in what they do. I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. I'm a mom. I'm a student. I'm a pastor. And when the doing, when the profession, when the work becomes who you are, and you begin to think that your identity is in what you accomplish, horrific things can unravel in your life when you make a mistake, when other people get promoted ahead of you, when your project doesn't get picked up, when you get passed up for a promotion, when you lose your job, when you get cut from the team, when you're no longer playing first violin and you move lower down the totem pole. And I see this time and time again where people, as they move throughout life, if they've put their primary identity in what they do and what they accomplish, when they get to retirement, when they get passed up for a promotion, when the kids move out of the house and they're no longer that active parent, everything begins to unravel. And everybody, of course, handles it differently. But I've seen in some cases that this really fantastic, almost fantasy writing type of description of what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar, his hair grows as long as eagle's feathers, his, his nails get as long as uh, the nails of bird claws, this sense that reason leaves him. I've seen people become so unraveled, become so distraught, become so unmoored that not only internally, but physically they become a wreck. I remember years ago speaking to a professional athlete who, after he got cut from the team, had no idea what to do with his life. And he said to me, he says, I don't know who I am anymore. Again, this gets back to Henry Nouwen's analysis. In the West, when we place our identity in what we do or what we own or what others say about us, in a sense, all we're doing is we're fulfilling what the world says our identities are all about. But if we can remember what our true identity is, not in what we do, not in what we own, not in what others say about us, but our identity is in who God says we are, that ultimately when that is the loudest voice in our life, that that's more important than anything we do, more important than anything we might own, more important than any reputation we might have or lose. When we realize that our identity is grounded in who God says we are, and that is more secure, more grounded, more anchored, more consistent, more eternal than anything else, there is this reality that even when success comes, what you have done never becomes greater than who God says you are. Henry Nouwen, through that book, also talks about the three temptations that Jesus faces in the desert. Remember, he is led out into the desert and the enemy of God, Satan, tempts him in a variety of ways. Three of them are recorded in Scripture. The first one is this. If you are the son of God, what's fascinating is that Satan goes right after Jesus' identity. If you are the son of God, prove it. Turn these stones into bread. 
Do something amazing. And Jesus is so secure in who God has said he is. Well, who did God say he is? It happens right before the temptations. When he comes up out of the water after being baptized, there is a voice from heaven that coincides with the dove descending upon him. And this voice from heaven says, Behold, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the verb tense, if you've heard me teach on this before, of well pleased is an eternal tense. It doesn't say, I'm going to be pleased. It doesn't say, I'm pleased in this moment, but I might lose that later on. It literally says, I've always been pleased, I am pleased, and I always will be pleased. And what's so remarkable is this is before Jesus has done any miracles, before he has really owned anything, and before he has the reputation that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Jesus, more secure than any human being has ever been or ever will be, moves throughout his entire life being completely secure in his identity in who God says he is, and he doesn't have the need to prove it to anybody, let alone Satan. And so he simply responds with Scripture. Is it not said in Scripture? Humanity shall not live on bread alone. And Henry now moves through the other two temptations that actually coincide with the same temptations that we have in Western society. Not just the temptation to do, but the temptation to own, of which Satan promises all the kingdoms of the world if he just bows down and worship him but it's also the temptation to have a great reputation. Satan even tempts him and says, throw yourself down off this temple and people will say that you are the Messiah. It's fascinating. Satan tempts Jesus with the same temptations that we have today. And what a great reminder that says in scripture that Jesus was tempted in every single way that we ever will be tempted and yet was without sin. He shows us not just so that we can imitate but so that we can know that Christ in us through faith has the ability to walk through the fires of those temptations in this particular instance for this particular sermon has the ability for us to walk through the fires of success that no matter what happens in your life, no matter how much you get promoted, no matter how many things are given to you, no matter how much authority you're given, no matter uh, what type of oversight you have, that we shouldn't fear the fire of success. You see, on one hand, we've got to know that success can be a fire. But the key thing is, is not to swing the pendulum and fear the fire. You know, I've met some Christians who actually very much want to avoid success. And they do so claiming, I don't want to get prideful. Uh, I don't want to get full of myself. So I'm just going to hold back. I'm going to lay back. I'm going to let everybody go before me. I'm not going to give my all. I'm really not going to try hard. And in many ways, that's actually a false humility. If I can say it this way, it's actually fearing the fire. It's actually believing that if I gain success, it's going to destroy me. It's going to crush me. It's going to burn me. It's going to incinerate me. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to fear it and I'm going to avoid it. And God doesn't call us to that at all. Remember, God calls us in all these fires to not fight, not fear, not avoid, but to be faithful in the fire. And again, the first of three things is that we've got to remember what our identity is. God says you are God's beloved child. God says you are a new creation in Christ. God says you are a holy and precious possession. 
God says that you are enough in Christ. God says that you are righteous in God's eyes because Christ has given you his record. A remarkable truth that when we spend time in scripture, when we spend time in prayer, when we spend time in Christ-centered community, we can remind one another who we really are. And so I need, you need people in your life, whether you have setbacks or successes, to remind you that all those things never change your identity. And the more that we can cultivate that reminder, we can be faithful in the successes. We can be unbound, walking in the middle of the fires of success. Now, the second one might have sounded odd at first. Remember, the second one is this. Set yourself up for failure more often. Uh, a great book that I highly recommend for you to read. It's not a, it's not a Christian book. Uh, as, a, as a former uh, major in psychology, I'm fascinated with the social sciences. I'm fascinated with psychology. I'm fascinated with sociology. I'm, I'm fascinated with people's views and, and study of, of cultures and generations. And there's this great book that came out a number of years ago called The Comfort Crisis. And the short story, the, the basic premise of this book is that uh, we live in a culture today that is so fearful of going outside our comfort zones is so fearful of failing that our comfort zones, in a sense, have gotten smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And we're basically told, unless you know you can do it, why do it in the first place? Unless you know you're going to succeed, why try? Unless you know you can finish the race, why show up at the starting line? I mean, if you think you're going to fail, if you think you're going to be uncomfortable, if you think you're not going to like it, why do it? And the result of that, the author says, is there is a comfort crisis. We lack the ability to have tenacity. We lack the ability to endure. We lack the ability to move out into the world because we so fear failure. And in the book, he actually recommends that at least once a year, you attempt to do something that has a 50% chance of success that you're likely not going to die doing it. I love that second part. And this remarkable reality is that it's okay to fail. It's okay not to finish. It's okay not to succeed because you'll realize on the other side of it, especially if you don't die physically, you won't die emotionally that actually something will happen through attempting something that you're not guaranteed success. And so in the book, he essentially says, how I would translate it is to set yourself up for failure more frequently. Now, when I apply scriptural truth to that observation, I see all throughout scripture that it is Christ's strengths and God's sustaining of us that matters. And if we never put ourselves in situations where we need God's strength, where if we always stay on the couch, always stay at home, always play it safe, uh, never take risks in following Jesus, never put ourselves out there to always be in our nice little comfortable bubble, we actually begin to atrophy. That becomes a fire in itself and it can begin to incinerate our courage for God. It incinerates our ability to persevere or to endure, that at the moment things get difficult, we retreat. The moment we have criticism, we back off. The moment we experience persecution, which is the topic next week, 
we, we completely change the story. And so I look at the Apostle Paul's life, who he has this thorn in the flesh. You can read about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he pleads with God to take that, that thorn in the flesh away from a lot of different ideas over to what that exactly was. But the point is that God speaks to Paul and says, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength, God says, is made perfect in your weakness. So again, when you set yourself up for failure more frequently, you experience a weakness that actually is a way to practice relying on God. So that as you cultivate more and more the ability to have your primary identity in who God says you are, to have God's strength be the strength that sustains you in failures, you will find that when you have successes, that you will have this, this muscle of faith, this muscle of reliance on God strengthened so much that even in successes, you won't forget that God says you are God's and nothing can change that for better or for worse. So let's practice setting ourselves up for failure more frequently and, and that could be in areas of faith, you know, sharing your faith with others, getting out and serving, getting outside your comfort zone to volunteer, stepping out into a life group, you know, speaking, whatever it might be in your workplace, a skill, a hobby, whatever it might be, every moment of every day is an opportunity to rely on God's strength, rely on God's provision in the setbacks and the successes. And the third and final is rejoice in the right thing first. There's this moment in Luke chapter 10. It's really interesting. Uh, Jesus has sent out uh, 70 disciples and they come back. And when they return, they are rejoicing. You can read about this in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. The 70 returned with joy saying, what was the source of their joy? Why were they rejoicing? They said, Lord, in your name, even the demons submit to us. Which on the surface doesn't seem like a bad thing to rejoice in. They're not rejoicing like, look at what I did to build my name, my reputation. They're not rejoicing that they made more money. They're not rejoicing that they built up their kingdom like King Nebuchadnezzar. What they're rejoicing in is doing something great for Jesus. And here's where the very subtle truth can slip in that when we rejoice in what we do before we rejoice in God, even if we, what we do is for God, it can become an idol. We can rejoice in our works for God rather than in God's self. And Jesus responds, he says, don't just rejoice in those things. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We need to rejoice in the right thing first. He's not saying it's bad to rejoice that you're doing these things for me, but he says, before you rejoice in that, rejoice that you're mine. Rejoice that we're one. Rejoice in your identity. That I am and you are in right relationship with one another. This gets a bit to primary calling and secondary calling. Oz Guinness, a great writer, I heard him say many, many years ago in, in, a, in a presentation to college students when I was in college, he says that we must, as followers of Christ, always remember our primary calling and how that comes before our secondary calling. Our primary calling, Jesus says, come follow me. 
And when we say yes to that call to follow Jesus, we, we receive an identity. We receive the Holy Spirit. We, we receive gifts of the Spirit. And now as we follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone, as we like to say at Bel Air, we now have a secondary calling that as we follow Jesus, primary calling, our secondary calling is to serve Jesus in a particular way, in a particular place. So my secondary calling at this moment is the senior pastor of Bel Air Church. He says, this is where you have to be very careful to never let the secondary calling, primary calling, never let the secondary calling become more important than the primary calling. Because if our identity turns into what we do, even if we do it for God, and if that becomes more important, if that becomes our strength, if that becomes our identity, if that becomes our, our foundation, what happens when I make a mistake? What happens when, when people criticize me? What happens when uh, I, I have setbacks? What happens if any of us loses our job? We become unraveled. We begin to think that we are what we do. And when you can rejoice in the right thing first, when you rejoice in your primary calling, this relationship that we have with God, kind of goes back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Our God's going to save us, but even if our God doesn't, what are they saying? They're basically saying that we are rejoicing in the fact that God is ours and we are God's. We are safe. We are secure. There's nothing that can happen. And even if it happens differently than we want it to, we're still not going to bow down and worship your gods. You see, when we rejoice in the right thing first, everything flows out of it. Our primary relationship with God spills out in our workplaces, spills out in our relationships, spills out in our parenting, spills out in our friendships, spills out into our, our roommates as we interact with them, spills out into our parenting and our marriage. All these things are the overflow of a relationship with God. No matter as the success grows, we can be faithful in it. We won't be incinerated by it. So friends, we might have moments where we're like King Nebuchadnezzar, where we get it right and then we forget. May we know that God doesn't destroy us. God leaves the stumps, so to speak, the roots in God. So that when we turn back to God, God can grow us up, not just to return to where we were, but to grow even greater, more and more in the image of Jesus. So friends, on one hand, I pray that the successes come in your life, but more importantly, when the setbacks come, when the successes come, may it be God and God's love for you, a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. May that be your greatest joy, your greatest source of your identity, your greatest salvation, your greatest source of peace. So no matter what comes, you would know that God is good. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. And as we move through this sermon series, would we apply these things into our lives? Would your Holy Spirit help us do that? To see in some ways how successes have been fires, but also know that we don't need to fear, fight those or avoid those fires, but you will be faithful and meet us in them. Holy Spirit, do a work. Help us to see you in the fire. Help us to know that we can walk free no matter what happens in our life, no matter what we do or don't do out in the world, you are with us. In Jesus' mighty and matchless name I pray. And we say together, amen.